the shir that we're giving is uh, being given Le'ilu Nishmat Bata Gittel about Moshe Aaron and Malka, uh, Abe's granddaughter who who passed away last Thursday. So it's been less than one week since she passed away. And the, the family got up this morning from Shiva. Uh, it was really a, a devastating loss. I, I was Zoha to be her teacher at Eula. And uh, she was just a real a beautiful neshama. And uh, and we are entering the period of Bain Hamad Sarim. And so I'm going to give Shira on that topic. Um, and uh, it should be, uh, her memory should always be a source of blessing and inspiration to all of us who knew her. Um, the the period that we are entering, starting really tonight, but uh, is called Ben Hamid Sarim. It's a, actually a title that shows up only in the time of the Rishonim, I believe. Certainly not mentioned anywhere in the Gemara, but it's based on a pasuk in Echa Korod Feha Hisiguha Ben Hamid Sarim that her enemies caught up with her between the narrow straits. Um, and the the reason that this that this period got the name is because there are two fast days. Uh, that come in close enough proximity that we could look at the period as a unit. And the two fast days are Shiva Sabatamuz, which is not Shiva Sabatamuz, and Tishabab, which is not Tishabab. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you look into the reports in the Tanakh about the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem, which is the only explicit event that takes place that we're fasting for, uh, tomorrow, uh, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by explicit, um, we will see that in one place, it seems to be the 9th of Tammuz. There seems to be another date given, not the 17th of Tammuz. question is whether the 17th of Tammuz was really the date that was the, uh, the date in the second temple period, when the Romans finally finished their siege and broke through the walls in the year uh, 70 CE. And therefore, that's why Shivasa Tammuz, or whether there's Kilkul Cheshbonot, Rather, really, it was the 17th of Tammuz in the first bayit also, and that's what we're fasting for. And there was such confusion that went on that they actually wrote right down the wrong date, a very difficult proposition, but one that the Gemara suggests. Um, in any case, Shivasa Tammuz and Tishabab are not just in proximity. It's not just sort of serendipitous that, that these two fasts come close enough that we can sort of pin the whole period together. The two fasts are essentially related because what started on Shabbat Sabbatamuz ended on Tisha B'Av. What started was that both in Bayit Risha and Bayit Sheni, sometime in Tammuz, maybe Shabbat Sabbatamuz, maybe a little earlier, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were broken down. The siege had finally given way. And over the course of the next three weeks, there was a systematic destruction of the city until finally, on or about Tisha B'Av, maybe the 10th of Av, uh, the, uh, all of the major buildings, most notably, of course, for us, the Beit HaMikdash, was destroyed. So Chazal already picked up on the parallel between the two, because from a halachic perspective, Shiva Sarba Tammuz is not linked to Tisha B'Av, it's actually linked to Tzom Gedalia and Asarab Tevet, as what is commonly called, quote-unquote, minor fasts. It's a little bit of an unusual uh, term, but they are called that way because relative to Tisha B'Av, that both includes a whole component of Avelut, and also relative to the timing of Tisha B'Av, which is that Tisha B'Av is a 24-and-a-half-hour fast, 25-hour fast, 
and um, as opposed to Shivasava Tammuz and Asarvatevat and Somgadalya, which are just daytime fasts. So it's considered a minor fast. Uh, nonetheless, Chazal linked Shivasava Tammuz to Tishabav uh, in this Mishnah. When we get closer to Tishabav, this will be the first year in a long time that we'll actually have Shirim together, because I'm not going to Israel this year in the summer. Um, we'll, we'll take a look at Tishabav itself. And uh, also at the, the issue of the four fasts as they show up in the Nevi'im um, in, in Sefer Zechariah. But for right now, we're going to take a look at this, com- this component. The, the uh, Masechet Ta'anit, the Masechet of Mishnah, which is mainly focused, believe it or not, not on the fast days that we think of as fast days. Um, something that up until this spring, many people were unaware of, is that fast days chiefly operate in halacha as responses to current events. Um, and, uh, you know, there were some people who were aware a couple of years ago when we had a really bad drought that there were some people who were fasting. But uh, when the when corona started as an event, there were people who were calling for a Tanit Sibur, and some of them became more aware. When you study Masachat Tanit, you see that Masachat Tanit is basically built around baiting, reacting, typically to drought, but then to other things, including plagues, and calling for fast days on Mondays and Thursdays with a certain uh, calendar system to it. And only at the very end of Masechet Tanit do we get into the historical fast. And the only historic fast that are really mentioned are t- is Tisha B'Av, and sort of on its, on its uh, coattails, Shiva Tammuz. And so this Mishnah, which begins the end of Masechet Tanit, uh, which you see the, t- the topic sentence of the Mishnah in red, in Source 1. Reads as follows: Chamishat dvarim eru at avoteinu b'shivasar b'tamuz v'chamishah b'tishav ba'av. So there's five things that happened to our ancestors on shivasar b'tamuz, and five that happened on tishav ba'av. Now, right away when you hear this, there's two things that kind of can surprise you. The first thing that surprises you is I didn't know shivasar b'tamuz was such a big deal. I know that tishav ba'av is k'bchiyal v'dorot. I know that throughout history we've always pointed to all sorts of things going to 1492 and 1914. And all sorts of th- terrible things that have happened on Tisha B'Av. I didn't know that Shiva Sabbat Tammuz had such a mark to it. Um, uh, and so to, to put Shiva Sabbat Tammuz almost on equal footing with Tisha B'Av is somewhat surprising. The second thing that's surprising is that the, the structure of the Mishnah seems to create some sort of a symmetry between them. And we've got to try to figure out what that symmetry is. And is it that under, underneath it all, Chazal is trying to tell us that these two days are alike, or that they're different, or there's a sequence, or what's going on. So let's take a look at the list. Now, before looking at the list itself, there's an important Hashkafic point to make. When we asked, we talked about this in the past, when we had Shirim on, about Sukkot, when we asked, what is Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Where would you put the boundaries of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? So we played with a lot of options. One option was from the time that the Makot started until after Kriyat Yamsuf. And one was from the time that we actually crossed Yamsuf until Harsinai. From the Torah's perspective, Yitzhak Mitzrayim seems to include the entire period of the desert. And the best proof of that is Sukkot. Because Hashem says, I have in Israel dwell in Sukkot. And according to most Rishonim, based on the famous Machloket of Lazar of Akiva, that refers to how they dwelt in the desert, clouds or tents, whatever it might be, or Sukkot. Um, and so 
Yitzhak Mitzrayim seems to be that entire period. The reason I mention that is because Chazal have as a hashkafic axiom that every major event in Jewish history is anchored in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim writ large, meaning that that period of essentially from leaving Mitzrayim, maybe Makat Pachorot, certainly before Kriyat Yamsuf, all the way till entering Eretz Yisrael, is a period of formation of patterns. And that all historic events are sort of anchored in that, which is why in the Gemara on this Mishnah, uh, they go through a lot of work to try to wedge some of these things, um, the, the two chief one, the number one on each list, to wedge them in to have them fit into Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Now I'll show you the, the, what I mean. Shivasar Tammuz. The first thing that the Gemara, that the Mishnah says is, Nishtabru haluchot. The luchot that Moshe got on top of Har Sinai were broken, which means that Moshe Rabbeinu came down from Har Sinai after being there 40 days, had the luchot in his hands, the eagle had already been constructed, the Bnei Israel were celebrating, laughing, whatever they were doing, Moshe saw it, and broke him, which means that the eagle, that whole event happened on the 16th of Tammuz, which is today, by the way, and that, um, and that the next day when Moshe came down, Nishtabru haluchot. Now, there is nothing in Sefer Shmot that gives us any sense of timing of the Luchot or when Moshe came down or any of that. Uh, we just don't have that information. Uh, and, and so the, um, the Gemara goes through an entire reconstruction of the dating of Mamad Arsinai such that the 40 days ends up on the 16th of Tammuz, comes down on the 17th, and breaks the Luchot. Um, we'll see the same thing when we get to the other list. Uh, Chazal then tell us, Batel HaTamid, that a, a particular time in history, and we don't know when, the Korban Tamid was stopped, which means the Korban Tamid, which is brought every morning and every evening in the Mikdash, every morning and every late afternoon in the Mikdash, corresponding to that we have Shachar and Mincha, um, at one particular point was stopped. We don't know if it means it was stopped and it was never brought again, which means the last Korban Tamid that has ever brought was brought on Shiva Sabatamuz in some year, maybe 70, maybe 69, or whether at a particular point in history, earlier on, maybe during the Hele- during the Hasmonean period, um, there was a cessation of the Korban Tamid. We don't know. Hovka'ahayir, that we know. We know that the walls are broken down. The walls of Shalom are broken down. And now we have another statement, which again, historians don't know what to do with it, and Chazal aren't exactly sure. Saraf apostomos etatorat. Some guy named Apostomos, evidently a Hellenistic general of some sort, publicly burned the Torah. Doesn't say where, doesn't say when, we don't know. And then we have the fifth item, which is Vehamid at Salem Bahichal, or according to some versions, who Ahmad Salem Bahichal. And the difference is, if we read Hamid, then that means it's still Apostomos. Apostomos did two terrible things. On Shavas he burnt the Torah and he put an idol up in the Hechal, in the Mikdash. If we read it, Huamad, it's a passive, and it means somebody else at some different period. Atzalim was put up in the Hechal. Many people believe that that's referring to Antiochus, Epiphanes Theos IV, the famous bad guy from Hanukkah, who had his image put up in the Mikdash on, um, in, in the year 167 BCE. Um, parenthetically, that doesn't work with what we know from history because in Maccabees 2, chapter 10, it tells us that that uh, that he actually put it up on uh, in December, December 25th, actually, 
which is why twenty fifth of Kislev, three years later, etc. But in any case, that's the list. Now, the the first thing to ask is: Are all of these things such momentous events? Are they such momentous events that they warrant to fast? Is it the combination of these events that warrant to fast? Is there something else going on? And then, why you know why these five? Do these five have anything in common? So let's look at the other list, and then we'll we'll take we'll analyze it. And the, and the English translation of all of them is below. Now I mentioned that uh, that Chazal do a lot of work to make the calendar work with this, because again we have very very few dates in the Torah of actual events that took place. And remember that the the biggest sin judged from perspective of biggest consequence that happened in the desert was the Miraglim, what we call the Miraglim. Because the consequence was that really they're all going to die. The relaxation of it was, we'll let you have kids before you die so that your kids will come into the land. But really the the Xera was to to destroy everybody. And so that decree happened on Tisha B'Av according to this. There is nothing in the story of the Miraglim that gives us a date. The closest thing that we have is that when the Miraglim were sent, which is 40 days earlier, it says it was Yimei Bikurei Anavim, the beginning of the grape harvest. doesn't tell us when it is. Actually, it seems to put it later in the summer. But uh, the Gemara here goes through a very detailed uh, calendar reconstruction to somehow end up with, uh, with uh, the Miraglim arriving back on the 8th of Av, and then by that night, everybody wept, and God made a decree. That night was Tisha B'Av, the famous statement of Rabbah, that God said, You are crying for naught. I'll give you what to cry for. Tonight will be a day of, night of weeping forever. And they wept at night, which is why our custom is only to read Eicha. Most of our idot is to read Eicha only at night. And the idea of staying up at night and weeping based on the Pasuk and Eicha, all from that. And again, the notion that every major Jewish event is anchored in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So therefore, the breaking of the walls of Yerushalayim and everything that goes along with that on the right-hand list is all anchored in the breaking of the tablets. And the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and everything that goes along with the left-hand list is all anchored in the decree against our ancestors coming to the land. So we've got to figure out how these things work together. So... Item number two and item number three of Tisha B'Av are the ones that we actually have a date for, more or less. The Beit HaMikdash destroyed the first, I mean, the first time and the second time. Right? It's, uh, it's, it's, the building gets rebuilt, but um, the building was destroyed for the first time on Tisha B'Av in the year 586 BCE. Again, the text, Belan clear, 7th of Av, 10th of Av, and the second one is a machlokar among the chachamim, the ninth or the tenth, um, and it was destroyed. Nilkatab Beitar. Now, this happened 65 years later. In the year 135 CE, the fortress of Beitar, which is where Bar Kokhba's army was, was uh, based, was invaded by the Romans, and they massacred, a terrible massacre, and it was really the end of all hopes of uh, restoration of nationalism and of sovereignty with a small little glimmer that popped up 230 years later. With, except for that, until the 19th century, that was it for Jewish nationalism. That was, it's been a long time. 
And the very last item is Nechashahair, that around the same time, remember that the, the building of the Beit HaMikdash was not taken down when the Romans destroyed it. They burned it, but you can't burn stone. So the buildings were still there. They were just burned out hulks of, uh, of shells of buildings. And remember the story with Rabbi Kiva, the very famous story that Rabbi Kiva with the foxes running out of the Beit, Beit Kodesh HaKoroshim, Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues were watching and they saw this and they cried and he laughed, the famous story, but they're watching the fox run out from a building. So the building was there. Um, what actually uh, generated Bar Kokhba's rebellion that started in 132 was the Romans announcing that they were going to raise the Harabayit, flatten it, and build a pagan temple, um, Elona Kapitolina there, and that's kind of what, what generated it. So the city finally was, uh, meaning the Harabayit was finally plowed under. And those things all happen on Tisha B'Av. Now, of course, after the rabbinic period, we can add a whole lot of other things to that list of Tisha B'Av, but that's what Chazal gave us. Now, you notice that they could have done this list a little bit differently. So, for instance, uh, on the right-hand side, numbers four and five could have been one item. Because if it's the same guy, that's kind of one event. And you could certainly, on the left-hand side, put two numbers two and three together. Right? It was the same event, although they're monumental and happened hundreds of years apart. Uh, four and five on the left-hand side could have been put together because one was really connected to the other. But they seem to want to create some sort of a parity between these two in order to, to give us a sense that there, is, um, that there is a relationship between these two lists. So let's see, first of all, what the five things of Shivasa Vatamus have in common. Right? But in order to do that, I want to preface it by looking at source two, uh, which is, um, sorry, by, by looking, I'm going to start actually by looking at source eight here, uh, which I tucked in, um, because um, this is something we're all familiar with the source, but the source actually speaks to us about um, about a critical sequencing um, of what we as Am Yisrael have to do. You know, you have a goal in life. The goal in life is to succeed in areas A, B, and C. Uh, family, business, uh, uh, involvement in public affairs, whatever it may be. And you also know that you have certain goals you have to attend to. I still remember when I was still in yeshiva, I was invited one of the years I was in yeshiva. Simchas Torah in yeshiva was a very, very big thing. Very festive, very intense. And one year I was invited to go help out with some a small community that didn't have a lot going on. I asked a friend of mine what he thought. And he said, you know, you're going to have many, many years to do that. Right now your job is to soak it all up. Stay in yeshiva and soak it all up. And he was right. And, you know, there's times in which you have to really sort of incubate and get all of your training and get all of the intense emotional experience and everything else. And then take that and move out. You can't start by moving out. You have to start by gaining a lot, and then you have something to give. In the same way, you take a look in Source 8 at Avraham's mission. Avraham's mission, as we all know, in blue, is to be a blessing for the rest of the world. And yet, how does it start? Lech lecha, which the most literal meaning of that means you go alone. May have to leave everybody behind. There I'll turn you into a big nation. You alone into a big nation. Whether Avram actually fulfilled that exactly or not, 
something we've talked about in the past. I'll make your name great. And then what will happen when your name is great? After all those years of solitude, all those years of fighting the good fight alone, then then you'll be a blessing to others. And then, or anybody who blesses you, I'll bless, etc. You'll suddenly be integrated with a lot of other people and you'll have a relationship with them and most of them are going to bless you and I'll bless them. At the end of the road, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. But it starts by you working on your own. You take a look in, uh, in Bilam's brachot. Bilam tried to curse us. In the meantime, Bilam actually blessed us. And Bilam's brachot, which there are essentially three of them, follow an interesting sequence. The, there's, there's three sets of brachot, and then the fourth one is when Bilam turns voluntarily and says to Balak, let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. So the first bracha is focused on Am Yisrael being absolutely isolated. In Am Levadad Yishkon, this nation resides totally by itself, in isolation. Uvagoyim loit chashav, which reads two ways, and they're both true. They're not considered among the nations, and they don't think about the nations. Meaning, nobody in the nations thinks about them. They think they're nothing, and they don't care what the nations think. They're on their own. And in the second bracha, you find a similar but modified sentiment. And then they're all highlighted in blue and green. Hein am kalavi yakumna. Notice the parallel. Hein am levadad yishkon and hein am. The same beginning tells you, I want you to link these together. Kalavi yakum v'chari nasa. Rises up like a lioness, which means that she still has an antagonistic relationship to those around her, but she's still connect, starting to connect to them. And then when you finally look at the end, the last words that, that, that Balaam says about Am Yisrael after Matov, when all that beautiful brachot is, Barchecha Baruch Ur. Those who bless you are blessed, and those who curse you are cursed. Meaning, you, this is a nation that interacts with the rest of the world. So Am Yisrael's process and progress and evolution is to start by being incubated, to start by being in a cocoon, to start by being closed off from the rest of the world, and to develop its own greatness, and then to interact with the rest of the world and share that with the rest of the world. Okay, I'd like to suggest that that's sort of what happens in our history on two mountains. One mountain is Har Sinai, the other mountain is Har Tzion. And there's really two britot that we made with God. We made a brit Sinai and a brit Sion. The brit Sinai was about our own personal connection to God and personal national communal connection to God internally, not having to do with the rest of the world. And Brit Sion is actually about the way we're supposed to interact with the rest of the world. That's the ultimate goal. Let's take a look. If you you saw here that, first of all, Nishtabru Haluchot, right? So that's the first thing that happens on Shiva Tammuz. Nishtabru Haluchot means the Brit between us and God was broken. The Luchot start out with Anochi Adonai Loacha, I am your God who took you out of Mitzrayim. There's a personal relationship between God and the Jewish people, and that gets shattered at Har Sinai. What else? Batel HaTamid, what does that have to do with it? So this week in Parsha Pinchas, we read at the, in the beginning of Hamishi, the Aliyah of the Korban Tamid. And we all know this Aliyah, we were Shodesh, familiar with it. And in that, uh, in that uh, Aliyah, we read, It's highlighted here in green that there is a keves every morning and a keves every evening. That parallels, by the way, the Hagita Bo Yomam Valayla, the idea that there is Avodat Hashem on a constant basis 
every morning and every evening. There's a regular relationship with Hashem. And notice what this is defined as, a very strange line. Olat tamid ha'asuya bahar sinai l'reach nichach yishel Adonai. This olat tamid as was done at Har Sinai. Now, whether this refers to the olot that Moshe brought at the foot of Har Sinai when he built the Mizbeach, or it, some other reference, perhaps re- referencing the olat tamid that was brought to dedicate the Mishkan, in any case, there is an explicit reference here to Har Sinai. Why is that? Because notice that the wording of the olat tamid is baboker and ba'erev, just like b'shach b'chav kumecha. All of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not a relationship of, of occasion, of convenience, of emotional pull. It's a commitment. And the commitment is a regular commitment, a daily commitment, morning and evening. And so Talmud Torah works that way. Tefillah works that way. The Korbanot work that way. And that's the breed of Sinai, a breed of constancy and of regular contact. Okay. So the second item here, Batel Tamid, suddenly the Korban Tamid, suddenly represents to us that special component of Har Sinai, and that was stopped on Shivasa Batamud. What about breaking the walls of the city, which we said happened really in both both destructions of Yerushalayim, the walls of the city were, were broken through on Shivasa Batamud. Very, a, a wild midrash, which gave birth to the name of an organization that I would assume nobody here is necessarily uh, too uh, sympathetic towards all of their viewpoints, but uh, they got they got their name from here. Um, and uh, just a quick intro. Um, the, the Midrashim that we have, you know, Midrash, we have Midrashim and lots and lots of material, but Midrashim uh, were typically, Midrashim Agada were typically composed on 10 books. 10 books, five Chumashim and five Migilot. And the reason for that is because they were read publicly. And some of the collections that we have are very early like Breshit Rabbah and Vayikra Rabbah and Echa Rabbah. And some of them are very late, like uh, Bamidbar Rabbah and Esther Rabbah, they're very late collections. But in Midrash Rabbah, we have 10 collections, and we have a collection known as Echa Rabbah. And Echa Rabbah, which is perhaps the most beautiful collection of Midrash we have, it's just elegiac, beautiful, um, has 27 paragraphs that are what, ca- what are called proems, or ptichtaot which are introductory paragraphs which the, the darshan would use to introduce Eicha. So before we're going to read Eicha, here's, here's an inspiring word, a vort. And in the Ptich you have the following story. It's in Ptich uh, number 20, in the middle. The Ptich are quite long. Rebbe, Rebbe here doesn't mean Rebbe Yudanasi, it actually means uh, Rebbe Yochanan. Havimishalech l'Rav Asi l'Rav Ami, so he would send his two closest students, Israel. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan, who was who was friendly with and had a relationship with Rabbi Yehuda Nasiya, who was the grandson of Rabbi Nasi, and had some leverage and ability to help Jewish communities, they would send his students to go check out the city, see what they need. They'd come into any city. Bring us the Niture Karta meaning bring us the guardians of the city. This is where they got the name from. They would bring them the cops, bring them law and order. Centara, by the way, centurion, that's where that word is. And the rabbis would say to the people of the town, 
Elin Harume Karta. Are these the guys who protect the city? These are the guys who destroy the city. It's a very strange take. Amr uh, Lahon, so the people of the city said to them, Uman Inun Karta, who really are the guardians of the city? Amr Lahon, Elu Sofrim Umishnim. These are the teachers. Shehem Hogim Umishanim Umishamir Tatarab Yem Valayla. We teach and guard the Torah day and night. And again, the idea of studying day and night. Now, the notion here is romantic. It's beautiful kind of imagery that what really guards the city is the study of Torah. But it speaks to a much deeper truth, which is something that we all understand, that the security of a city is not based solely on or even chiefly on the armaments that are at the, at the gate, but rather on the, on the sense of harmony and the sense of ideals, et cetera, which animate the populace. Because when you have a population that feels connected to each other, feels committed to, Nash, to, to the public wheel, that, uh, that is supportive of those who are protecting it, then the, the protection happens. And on the other hand, as we know, you can have the greatest defenses up, but if the people don't like each other, don't get along, the city falls. Yushalayim fell because of schismatics, because of the fact that there were so, so many different sects fighting with each other and nobody could get along. And so here you see, again, the notion of the protection of the city. What actually keeps the walls of the city protected? The walls of the city are protected by Torah, by Torah study. It's a way of saying that idea. And so now you see that the notion that on Shiva Saba Tammuz, the walls of the city were breached, means, again, there was a break in that. Now, burning the Torah publicly and putting an idol up, which is just so reminiscent, putting an idol up in the Heichal, Look at that, look at Egel HaZahav at the foot of Har Sinai, and you just see a replica of it. So you can see that in items four, one, four, and five are all clearly linked together, but two and three are also, from an idealistic perspective, linked, is that they are a breach of Brit Sinai, a breach of the Brit between us and Hashem, which is connected through Torah. Okay. We'll take a look now at, at Tisha B'Av. What was Tisha B'Av? So the Pasuk and Tilim will kind of start us off, in source four, it refers to the people's reaction to hearing the report from the Meraglim. It says, They rejected the beautiful land. But what were they rejecting? They were rejecting a land in which they were going to go and build their own national life with sovereignty and, uh, and take what they had from Harsinai and make it real. What was the purpose of that? So it's interesting when you look ahead in Jewish history, and you take a look in Yeshayahu Perak Bet, there's a very famous nevuah, it's outside of the UN, but nonetheless, it's a good nevuah, and, um, and you take a look in Yeshayahu Perak Bet, is nevuah about Acharit Hayamim, it's also Michadalad, that the, the prophecy of the end of days is a prophecy in which all the nations of the world are going to say, let's go to Yerushalayim, let's go to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, ki mitzion tetzei Torah, that's where that line comes from. When you sing that, when you say that, you're actually quoting the Goyim, as quoted by Yeshayahu about what he, what he anticipates is going to happen, is that the whole world's going to come to Yerushalayim. Now, how is the whole world going to, why would they come? Why would the whole world come to Yerushalayim to learn Torah? Well, the answer is earlier in Yeshayahu. In the passage from Yeshayahu that we're going to hear in three weeks on Shabbat, um, on the Shabbat Chazon, um, uh, two weeks from this Shabbat, 
What does God say he's going to do? I'm going to get rid of your dross. I'm going to get rid of all of the, the unpleasant things. And what does that mean? I will restore your judges as of old. We adopt that into our tefillah. And then what happens? Then you will be called the city of Tzedek. By the way, Tzedek is always related to Shalim. Remember the first time we ever hear of Shalim, the king's name is Malki Tzedek. And later on, next time we hear about it, there's a king named Adoni Tzedek. It's the city of Tzedek. Now, when the whole world sees there's this city that is a capital of a, of a thriving economy, of, a, of an international power, but that they are run according to a, an, a, a supremely ethical system in which everybody's welfare is taken into account and, and, uh, and justice is served, that inspires the world. That's what's going to draw the world there. We're not quite there yet, although we're getting there. But that's the image that Yeshayahu has. So the idea is that Yushalayim is the place that we're going to attract the whole world. Sinai is the place where we had our private meeting with God. Sinai is compared in Chazal to a chuppah, a private place, a private area where it's just us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We come to Shalayim, it's now time for us to broadcast to the world. It's the second stage in the Abrahamic step of And so therefore, by us bettering ourselves in Shalayim, we're able to broadcast to the world. And that's why Yeshayahu later on says, I'm going to bring, these are Jews, I'm going to bring them to my holy place. Accepted. And then, it's going to be a Beit Tfilah for the whole world. In other words, that's the ultimate goal. So Brit Sinai was a Brit of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Brit Sion was a Brit between, of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu to, and our responsibility towards the entire world. Our responsibility to HaKadosh Baruch Hu towards the entire world for us to teach the entire world of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to be the Shadchanim to bring them together. And so when we take a look back now at these five things, you can see how they're lined up. That the five items that Chazal identify, and they don't go one of the lists to be symmetrical, so you would see this. The five items that Chazal identify as being, uh, have been taking place on Shiva Tammuz, and again, plus minus, Shiva Tammuz, or not exactly, is not our problem, because Chazal don't think in those terms. All have to do with the shattering of Brit Sinai. The last two items are just very obvious: burning the Torah and breaking the and uh, and putting up a, a tzelam in the Hechal. But numbers two and three also have to do with Brit Sinai. You take a look at the items on the left-hand side to the decree not to come into the land. That means we can't come into the land and create a sovereign country where we can impact the rest of the world. The Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. The Beit HaMikdash is supposed to be a Beit Tfilah L'chol Hamim. So that's items two and three. What about Beitar? Well, what Beitar was, was the very last hope of Jewish sovereignty. It was the last hope for almost 2,000 years of Jewish sovereignty. And so when Beitar was destroyed, and by the way, if you take a look in Chazal, you'll see that up until the destruction of Beitar, the attitude among Chazal was, this isn't so terrible. It's not great, but it's not so terrible. And we'll be able to be restored. And very soon, the Beit HaMikdash will be rebuilt, and we'll be back, just like last time. After Beitar, it's a tailspin. After Beitar, there's a deep depression. 
After Beitar, the entire direction of theology and of eschatology and of meta-history and everything else goes into a very different direction, a direction that's born out of a sense of we're in for a long, long period, a period that Baruch Hashem, we, we are seeing, seeing ourselves being brought out of Bechastei Shemayim. And Nechashahayir, to, to plow over the city, is essentially like salting stone. It's like saying this ain't going to ever happen anymore. And the city, again, represents our capital towards the rest of the world. So when we take a look at Shiva Saba Tammuz and Tisha B'Av, two days that are very different. One is, quote, unquote, quote, minor fast. One is Tisha B'Av. One doesn't involve any formal avilut. One is Tisha B'Av. Um, nonetheless, Chazal identify them as being connected and symbiotic and evolutionary. You go from Shiva Saba Tammuz to Tisha B'Av. And Tisha B'Av, which is the culmination of it all, is not the breaking of Brit Sinai. It's the breaking of Brit Sion. It's not the breaking of our, our personal connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's our rejection of our job towards the rest of the world. Interesting to note is that Tisha B'Av, which is our rejection of the land and our rejection of sovereignty and all the responsibility that comes along with it, is a much more severe, uh, is a much more severe day. So, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, Mir Tashem, with all everything else that's going on, this should be the last year where we could talk about this in the present tense, and then in Mir Tashem next year we'll talk about this as old Torah that was true then, and then in the meantime, Shiva Sarvatamuz Enti Shabbat should be, as the Navi Zechariah tells us, Yamim Tovim, Ba'amet Shalom Ehavu. We've been studying together uh, to honor the memory of uh, of our dear Batya. And uh, we hope that this will serve as at least some mode of consolation uh, for the family. Ihi Baruch.